please remain standing as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, what a joy it is to be with you as we begin this journey called Holy Week together. Uh, David and Toy have mentioned the numerous opportunities that are a part of this week for worship and for service, and we look forward to each of them. I had not heard before, maybe you have, of a bluegrass mass, but we're going to see that tonight and experience that tonight in the chapel at 7 p.m., and some of you have heard them practicing. We've heard a number or two that they've done over the last uh, several weeks during this series in Lent, and we look forward to that time together. Also, you need to know that uh, Liam Thompson, the young man who fell here, uh, is very fortunate that his mother's first name is Doctor. (laughs) All mothers are doctors, but she really is a doctor, and so she was the first one here, and we think that he simply locked his knees. He came to as quickly as he went down and wanted to know what we were doing standing around him. (laughs) So uh, thank you, Toy, for remembering him in in our prayers, and uh, we look forward to this evening in particular. Uh, for this bluegrass mass. If you've been here over the last several weeks since Ash Wednesday, we've been thinking together about the last words of Jesus, and we've been using this theme called crosswords. And we're going to conclude this series on Thursday evening this week, Maundy Thursday, with the seventh and final word, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And so we hope that you'll be here both Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, but particularly Maundy Thursday as we bring to a close this series on last words. Today, this morning, morning, we're focusing on the sixth word, which is found exclusively in the fourth gospel. In fact, in John's gospel, this word that we have just read, he recounts as the last word of Jesus before he breathed his last. It is finished. I don't know about you, but it sounds to me initially as though this is a cry of despair, almost like it's a a death gurgle. It is as if Jesus is saying at this point, I'm finished. It's over. What we started, we had a good start. It's now curtains. I'm done for. It's history. And yet a closer look at the text reveals something very different from what I just described. In fact, the word in the Greek text, there's only one word, it's not three words, is tetestelai, tetestelai. Literally, that word in the Greek means accomplished, and that's a different message. It means completed or fulfilled. I discovered recently that this word tetestelai is actually an ancient accounting term that means paid in full. And when you understand the Greek text, the original language in which this was written, that gives new meaning 
to these words. It's interesting, isn't it, that the New English translation, we read the NRSV, but the New English translation and the Common English Bible, this text says it is completed. And there's another detail in verse 29 in this text. As you may have noticed, we read the text that we read last week with an additional verse. In fact, how many, were you here for Toy's sermon last week? Was that amazing or what? That was a beautiful message. And Lane, amen, amen. She's training us, isn't she? Amen. 9.45, Lane also preached a wonderful sermon on that particular verse, I thirst. That was the fifth word. As she was preaching, it occurred to me there is a reference in that text to the hyssop branch, and that's not a throwaway line. That's an important detail. After Jesus says, I thirst, some of the bystanders who were there beneath the cross apparently soaked a sponge in sour wine and lifted it to his mouth on a branch of hyssop. And when I read that, I, I think, Greg, what does it matter? I mean, why doesn't it just say, say they put a sponge on a twig and gave Jesus a sip? It matters because you've discovered that every, every word in the gospel of John has meaning. So why hyssop? To understand the meaning of hyssop, you have to go back to the Torah, don't you? You have to go back to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 12, where on the night before God delivers his Hebrew children through the Red Sea, instructions are given to the Hebrew slaves that they are to take a branch of hyssop and dip it into the blood of the sacrificial lamb and apply it or smear it on the doorpost of their homes. So that when the death angel comes bringing the tenth and final plague, which is death to the firstborn sons, when the death angel sees the blood applied with the hyssop to the doorframe, he will pass over those homes. It is a sign of deliverance. Did you know that hyssop was also considered in ancient days to be of medicinal help, of cleansing help? And so we saw it on Ash Wednesday when we began this Lenten pilgrim pilgrimage in Psalm 51, David's confession, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean and my sins shall be whiter than snow. And they put a sponge of sour wine on a branch of hyssop and they gave him a drink. Something big is happening in this text. Apparently, this is not just a good man dying. This is a God-man delivering. And when he had tasted the wine, he said, Tetestelai. It's not a cry of despair. John is saying this is a cry of completion. It is a cry of victory. It's as if Jesus is saying in his last words, mission accomplished. Now, I've always heard ever since I was growing up as a boy in Nashville that the hardest part is getting started, and that can be true. Who among us hasn't faced some daunting task, some, some challenging task, and, and we just give up before we ever get started? It's too hard. 
The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Sometimes the hardest part is getting started. But sometimes the hardest part is finishing what you start. Anybody see the Olympics in South Korea on the TV during February? If you did, you may know the name of Simon Hegstat Kruger. This Norwegian Olympic skier who was competing in the 30-kilometer skiathlon. Now, those of you who don't do kilometers, uh, that's about 18.6 miles. This is uphill and downhill. It lasts for over an hour. It's 18.6 miles. And this particular skier, Simon Kruger, during the first 200 meters of the race, just face-planted. He was clipped from behind. He falls on his face in the first 200 meters, and right behind him, there are two Russians who also dump on top of him. He loses, at the very beginning, 40 precious seconds in this race. In the Olympics, a tenth of a second can be the difference between victory and defeat. He falls on his face, he loses 40 seconds, and he's thinking to himself, I trained all these years, and I'm finished before I ever get started. But I don't know what it was within him, but suddenly you see him get up and he begins to put one ski in front of the other. He is running in 68th position out of guess how many competitors? 68. After a little bit, he's number 67. And then after a little longer, 65. Now he's 58. Now he's running 47th. And near the end of the race, Simon Krieger was actually running 22 seconds ahead of the rest of the field. They said it was a miracle. To me, it spells out a universal truth. It really doesn't matter how you start. What matters is how you finish. The hardest part of life is sometimes finishing what you start. We've got some marathon runners in the room. Any marathon runners in the room? There are no marathon runners in the room. There's, okay, both of you are here. Both of you, I, I'm not a marathon runner, but I've been told that it's pretty easy when you begin the race. The first two or three miles, it's, it's a breeze, but long about 16, 18 miles, uh, you begin to question your heritage at that point. You begin to wonder, what on earth was I thinking? And the hardest thing is not the beginning, but when you go the distance, they tell me you have to learn to run with pain. We did a wedding here last night. It was a beautiful wedding. And I thought later last night, I told Sherry, you know, it's pretty easy to exchange rings and say I do and all of that. And it was beautiful. But it's another thing when you think about living out those vows till death do us part. You have to learn to run with pain sometimes. It's fairly easy to come and make a profession of faith in Jesus. That's a wonderful thing to receive baptism, to join the church. It's a wonderful thing. It's pretty easy to do that. But it can be awfully difficult to live out your faith in the shadow of a cross. It's hard to finish. When I think of not finishing well, I think of a man named Demas you may not know him, but his name is in the Bible. He gets three verses in the Bible, Demas, D-E-M-A-S, all by Paul. Paul writing to Philemon remembers 
Demas as a partner, a colleague in the ministry. And then in Colossians, he remembers him as a good friend of Dr. Luke. But the last word is rather heartbreaking on Demas. You find it in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul writing, And Demas, my brother in the faith, has fallen in love with the present world and deserted the gospel. He had a good start, but he didn't finish. I did some research the other day and discovered something that's kind of ironic to me. The name Demas in the Greek lexicon, do you know what his name means? It means popular. Have you ever discovered how difficult it can be to be both faithful and popular? The hardest part is finishing what you start. I tell you, I've been between rocks and hard places in my life, and and I've often leaned on a verse of Scripture. This is a life verse for me, Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, I am confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. Lean into that verse. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 and 24, run the race in such a way that you will finish the course. Pace yourself along the way. Mark Twain, one of the greatest quotes I can remember from Twain is this, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Now that'll preach. Jesus knew his why. (laughs) He knew it early in his life. When he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, he knew his why. He knew it early when he said, greater love has no man than a man who lays down his life for his friends. He knew it as early as the third chapter of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. He knew it early but what a finish to test a lie. It's not a cry of despair. It's a cry of completion. Jesus fulfilled his why. Two weeks ago, John Frame, one of our lay leaders here, and I had the privilege of representing you in a consultation on persecution in Beirut, Lebanon. One of the refugees we were privileged to meet, her name is Miriam, a Syrian woman who was run out of her home, she and her husband, their four children, by ISIS. They have four kids. They came to the door and said, your house, your possessions, or your life. And they left with the clothes on their back. And they're living in this tiny apartment in Beirut. And she shared her story with us. She said, my children are still bearing the scars physiologically and psychologically of the trauma that we've experienced over these last seven years. Miriam keeps a little worship center across from her sofa where there's a candle burning, and on either side of the candle, there's a picture of Mary and there's a picture of Jesus. We came in to give her a food voucher and a prayer blanket, and and she looked at us with tears, and she said, last night I went to the cupboard, and I opened it up, and I had one potato, 
And I took a knife and I sliced the potato thinly and I made potato sandwiches for our family, but there's nothing this morning. And she was so grateful. She was grateful for the prayer, for the visit, for the voucher. But most of all, she was grateful for the prayer blanket. More than anything else, this group on Wednesday morning who gathers to make these beautiful prayer blankets, they'd prayed over it and we handed it to her and we said, this represents a group of women in the United States who feel your pain and want you to know that they care. The same Christ who called Miriam in her youth is still beside her in her exile and when she touches that blanket, she knows that. Jesus is our model for perseverance, isn't he? What God began in a cradle in Bethlehem, he completes on a cross in Golgotha. And what we know is that Jesus didn't have a death wish. Jesus didn't want to die. And that's why he prayed the night before Calvary, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't want to face suffering. I don't, I don't want to face death. Let this cup pass. But then Jesus added this other really important word that if you add it in your prayer life, it'll change your life. He said, nevertheless, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not what I want, but your will be done. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not turning back. I'm going to finish what we started, whatever the cost. I heard somebody say recently that too often the church in the U.S. is too full of what-if disciples. What, what if this happens or what if that happens, then I, I won't be able to see it through. I won't be able to stay faithful but what we need is not what if followers of Jesus. We need even if disciples. Even if it means challenge. Even if it means running with pain, with hardship, I'm not turning back. You know, we finished that series on Daniel in January and February. I enjoyed that series so much, the study. I love in particular that story we talked about in Daniel, Daniel 3. You remember the three refugees, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who absolutely refused to bow down to the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had constructed. And of course, when word gets back to the palace that these boys won't bow down, the king had had it up to here. And so he calls the three exiles in before the throne. This is life or death, he says. If you refuse to bow down, I will cast you into the fiery furnace. And you remember their response? O king, they said, this is gutsy. <laughs> we need not defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're cast into the fiery ordeal, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods and we will not bow down before the image you've made. I tell you, I've gotten to the point where I've decided I really want to be an even if disciple. I don't want to be a part of a what if church. 
I want to be a part of an even if. Even if you have a rocky start, even if you're running number 68, even if you're facing an uphill battle, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. In other words, God doesn't start anything that God can't finish. And God wants to complete His why in you and in me. Let me give you one example and I'm finished. I was reading a while back about an old story about a Japanese soldier from World War II. His name was Lieutenant Hiru Onada. Lieutenant Onada had been left on the island of Lubang in the Philippines on Christmas Day 1944 in the midst of World War II. Somehow he became separated from his comrades and did not know a year later in September of 1945 that the war had actually ended, and so he continued on his own to fight. All efforts to convince him to surrender failed. He ignored messages from loudspeakers announcing Japan's surrender. He refused to believe it. Leaflets were dropped over the jungle where they thought he was to say, come out so that we can take you home. But he didn't believe it. His orders had been to never surrender. And so over these years, he lived off the land. He raided the farmer's gardens and fields to eat and was responsible himself alone for killing 30 nationals after the war was over. A half million dollars was spent trying to locate Onada and bring him home. And get this, finally, on March the 10th, 1974, 30 years after the war had ended, he surrendered his rusty sword. His commanding officer from back in the day came and shared with him the terms of the ceasefire order, and he surrendered, and he was pardoned. Onada was 22 when he was put on that island, and he was 52 when he left. He died four years ago at the age of 92, but not before he returned to Lubang to help build a school for the children whose grandparents he had killed. Now, I tell you that story today because his story is a reminder to me that there are some of us who are still fighting a battle that's already over. There are some who are still wandering, who are still warring, who are still resisting and running when the truth of the matter is our commanding officer has already won the battle And he has established the terms of peace in the gift of his son. And the secret to reconciliation is surrender. (laughs) That's it. Yielding your life, yielding my life to the one who has paid in full the cost of our deliverance so that we can come home 
You are the why of God. You are the reason He came, and you're the reason He has gone the distance, and He wants to complete His work in you and through you. Charles Wesley said it like this, O love divine, what hast thou done? The immortal God hath died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The immortal God for me hath died. My Lord, my love is crucified. Friends, it is finished. Fulfilled. Paid in full. Completed. And our only response is to surrender. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.